Praised be Jesus Christ. Peace be with you today, Sunday, January 16th, 2022. Speaking to you here from a hiking trail in the heart of the Portola Valley, about half an hour's drive away from Menlo Park, where I go to seminary. Quite a beautiful trail. I've never been out uh, this way before, although there is a park or uh, nature preserve kind of that's also in this area that I like to go to. It's called Wonder Lake State Park. Uh, and the way to get to this place where I am today, this is called Razorback Ridge. You go the same way you would go to Wonder Lake, but at a certain point you go left instead of right. And then you go for another 15, 20 minutes on this very windy, um, like mountainous road, which is super cool. It was a fun drive. And then this particular trail is uh, quite a ways back. There's other trailheads that were closer, um, that were much more populated and popular. Uh, there were lots of cars there. But uh, this one, this was like the third or fourth one, hardly visible from the road, not really marked. And I was the only one uh, there when I arrived. I've seen other people on the trail. So I think these there are various trails out here that all connect and you can get onto this trail from other ways but uh yeah it's very nice kind of pine forest um lots of moss lots of ferns and the trail is pretty much switchbacks windy um yes and it was a steady descent all the way in and uh so now <laughs> For the record, I'm regretting that I didn't record while I was hiking in, because now that I'm hiking back, you all are going to be subjected to the sound of my labored breathing as I slowly regain altitude. But these are just the sacrifices we have to make for the sake of art, <laughs> for the sake of podcasting. Ah, well, you may recall, if you listened to my last episode on Tuesday, that I thought I might be getting sick, and, spoiler alert, I was. So from that time that I recorded that episode until today, I haven't left my room. So there's really, in one sense, not a lot to say. <laughs> I've uh, pretty much been in and out of bed. I've been bouncing between my bed and my desk for the last four or five days. Um, I have gotten quite a lot of work done, and in some ways, it was kind of a blessing to be in my room for most of the first week of classes because uh, there were very few distractions and I was able to make some good progress on a lot of things. So I did begin my first paper this weekend, yesterday. It's on St. Ignatius of Antioch for a class I'm taking on the early church fathers. And uh, Ignatius of Antioch is quite an interesting figure. 
I think I've written, or I think I've spoken about him before, perhaps on his feast day on the podcast. Um, we basically, we have seven of his letters, all of which he wrote while he was being forcibly transported by the uh, emperor's soldiers from Antioch to Rome, where he was going to be martyred. He was the third bishop of Antioch. St. Peter, of course, was the first. He was bishop of Antioch before he went to Rome. The second one, I don't remember, but he didn't reign for very long. And then came Ignatius. Ignatius, whose name means the fiery one. Ignatius, the burning one. And so Pope Benedict says that in the letters of St. Ignatius, you can detect the unmistakable ardent love, the burning love of a saint. It's true. His letters, uh, if you get a chance, you ought to, to read one or two of them. And of the letters that he wrote, I recommend you read his letters to the Romans and to the Ephesians, particularly. Because, yeah, they still shine brilliantly across almost 2,000 years of distance separating us from him. They shine with his love for Christ, his desire for union with God, and they're very inspiring and humbling. At least I find them so. <laughs> he uh, has quite a, a beautiful theology of union with God by means of imitation of Christ. He's sort of the first Christian theologian to espouse um, that particular idea. So he kind of unites the, the two spiritual currents or theological approaches of St. Paul and St. John. St. Paul, who's all about life in Christ, you know, you get that from all throughout his letters. We, uh, you know, it's no longer I who live, but now Christ living in me. You've put on Christ like a garment at your baptism. Um, etc., etc. So St. Paul is all about life in Christ. The life of the baptized now is a supernatural life lived in union with, with Jesus Christ, our Lord, and what that means for us. Um, St. John, very much, the accent of St. John's theology is about, um, you get it especially in his letters, his epistles, walking in the light, walking in love, um, like he, he, towards the end of his life, for his homilies, he would simply say, love one another. And the people would ask him, dear uh, Bishop John, isn't there something else you have to say? Well, that's really all that there is to say, <laughs> replied St. John. And so um, St. Ignatius unites these two currents in a beautiful way with this theology of the imitation of Christ, leading to and maintaining our union with Christ. The union with Christ, which, of course, is first effected at our baptism. But then, how do we maintain it? Principally by living just as Christ lived, striving to conform ourselves more and more to his example. And in a particular way, the theme of St. Ignatius is obedience. So, imitation of Christ by means of obedience, preserving the unity of the Church, obeying the bishop, obeying the presbyters, especially in liturgical worship and professing the common faith. So from, from St. Ignatius, we get this uh, 
It's also in St. Paul, I suppose. <laughs> but he has in one of his letters this quote about, um, as there is one chalice and there is one loaf, so also one bishop, one altar, one faith, one baptism, one Lord. And the need for us who have been baptized into Christ to preserve that, that bond of unity, which is the source of our life in Christ. So he's very strong on this. If anyone, you know, becomes a schismatic, if anyone breaks communion with the bishop, uh, if anyone chooses, to, dares to preach a different gospel than the one handed down by the first apostles, he's not in Christ, and Christ is not in him. For that reason, Pope Benedict calls him a true mystic of unity, the unity of the church. Other than that, um, I was excited to have our first homiletics classes this week. Well, not the first, but the first of the year. I've had two others before. This, however, I can tell is going to be the best. <laughs> and the professor told us from the first class, those of you who've had other homiletics classes before, this one will not be anything like them. And he's right. He's having us use a very particular method to prepare our homilies, which the other classes did not. Uh, the first class I had in the preaching sequence was pretty much just public speaking 101. Um, we did, I think we did prepare one homily, but we also did just various other things. We proclaimed a poem and <laughs> we uh, gave a, a pre like a lecture presentation. Um, just, just to practice like vocal techniques and things like that. And then the second course, we did write a, a number of homilies, and most of them are here on the podcast feed. Um, they're the very first like reflections that I put up, 2019-2020. Uh, but for that class, we didn't have any guidelines. The professor didn't give us a method to follow. It was totally freeform, and we each just kind of got tossed into the deep end and figured out how to swim and found our own way to do it. So for this class, the professor has a very clear method. And, uh, you know, it makes sense from his point of view why one would do that, because it gives some objective criteria to grade our, our homilies on. On the other hand, this is the method that he himself uses. He's a very good preacher. And after... The second lecture he gave us um, explaining the theory behind this method, I'm really sold on it, and I'll tell you why. The method is called the um, seven-point homily by a priest named Father Halverson. I don't know if it's in a book somewhere or where you can find it, but I'll just uh, explain the seven points to you here and then tell you why I think it's so good. So basically... Um, Father Halverson advises homilists to follow a narrative plot. So preaching should have a narrative structure. Um, that's the way that the Lord preached almost all the time. The Gospels recount that wherever he went, he taught the people in parables. He taught them using stories. And, you know, as human beings, we're hardwired for stories. We love stories. Like, this is a homiletical method that J.R.R. Tolkien <laughs> would certainly approve of, because he realizes that 
on some level we are made for story, we're made for myth, and we love it. If there's a story that we can enter into, um, the mind loves to just run free within that, that secondary world, Tolkien would say, and that's a place where you can encounter truth. If you have a skilled writer, weave the truth into the story. But I'm getting away from the point. So here's the seven-point method of the narrative homiletical plot structure. In the first place, you have a challenge. There's a problem. So an example might be from today's gospel. Um, the problem in the gospel story itself is that they've run out of wine at the wedding of Cana. The problem, very often for us, uh, this is just a connection that, that I'm making. The problem very often for us is that it seems that our wine has run dry. It seems that the joy of living the Christian life, sometimes it dries up. And then the question is, what do we do next? So first point, identify the challenge. This should spring naturally from the readings. So you first presuppose, you, you read and pray over the readings of that day or Sunday, and in your meditation, some kind of challenge, some kind of problem will emerge um, in, the, in the dialogue, the encounter between yourself, your own life, and the reading. So it, a homiletic preparation has to begin with kind of a Lexio Divina, prayerful reading of the scriptures. Then you have your challenge. Point two, what is the temptation, what is the sin that we are tempted to fall into? as a result of that challenge? What's the sinful response that we're tempted to make? Um, an example might be, while the joy of the gospel seems to have dried up, living the gospel way of life seems to be a dead end. And so, the temptation is, let's look for a different path that brings some kind of, of delight. Let's look for an easier way to go, and let's begin traveling by that way. Um, the third point is just to play out the consequences. So show why making that choice, following that sinful response, temptation, is a really bad idea. The fourth point of the homiletical plot, so far basically, this is a downward slope. So it's going down, down, down. The fourth point is basically rock bottom. The fourth point is uh, you're in need of a savior. Who will deliver me from this body of death, says St. Paul. Then, at this point, there's a clear vertical dividing line because the fifth point is here is the savior. Here's Jesus, the fifth point, you preach Christ crucified and risen, Christ who is our hope. What's the word of hope that addresses this challenge and that really provides, um, you know, our, our response, which is for our good, um, to lead us out of, yeah, the pit of sin and despair and along the way of hope um, and fullness of life. So, five proclamation of Christ. In six, all of a sudden the plot, narrative plot line, which has reached its lowest point, now arcs sharply up. 
And the sixth point is, what are we called to do here and now in response to, yeah, the, the proclamation of Christ the Savior and his offer of salvation? What are we called to do? What response must we make to his offer of, of salvation, his offer of life? And the seventh and final point, the homily has, uh, the plot line <laughs> has reached uh, a higher point even than it was in the beginning, and there it fades away and disappears. And the seventh point basically is the final um, word of hope. Uh, you want to end the homily on a word of hope. And so basically that's it. Begin with the problem, trace that through a sinful response down to the depths, the need for a savior, then proclaim Christ, he is the savior, here's his invitation, here's the response we must make, and here's the, here's the word of hope, here's the possibility of life which opens up before us if we accept his offer of salvation. So that's the meta, the meta, excuse me, the meta narrative, the meta plot, which Father Halverson traces behind every good homily. You can use that tool to diagnose what goes wrong with bad homilies as well. <laughs> and I've been applying it uh, over the last couple of days <laughs> to different homilies that I've heard. It's very helpful because if, if your parish is like most parishes, you probably hear a lot of bad homilies. No disrespect to priests. Um, I've preached a lot of... Uh, I, haven't, I haven't actually preached any homilies, but I've preached some bad reflections <laughs> in my last few years of homiletical prep. And the problem, most often, is that the preacher does not have a clear plot in mind. Thus, there's the saying, he's lost the plot. <laughs> Meaning... Uh oh, <laughs> this this humbly is going way off track. We don't know if it's ever going to come back on to the trail or not. It's lost somewhere off in the woods, and it might never be found. <laughs> so, good homily has one clear plot, and uh, I think that's the most common problem: is trying to bring in too many things. The central message gets lost. But also, you could have a problem of imbalance. Maybe it's all bad, and there's no word of hope. It just goes down and down and down. And there's never a proclamation of salvation. Well, then that's not, that's not an authentic proclamation of the gospel. It's just a diagnosis of what's wrong <laughs> with our own fallen humanity. Likewise, uh, it can be the case that a homily just focuses on sunshine and roses, the goodness of life in Christ. And that's good, but what's the relevance? Is that engaging the people sitting in the pews? Maybe some, probably not those who are really struggling with something difficult. Um, you have to reach those who are in a place of need and alert those who may not be aware of it that they too are in a place of need. Then, and only then, provide the answer to that deepest desire, which is Christ himself. Incidentally, a few days before I got sick last week, I went to see the new Spider-Man movie with one of the seminarians. And uh, we were talking afterwards about this idea of the meta-narrative, um, or as one literary critic calls it, the mono-myth. <laughs> the one myth which lies behind all the others. Uh, I believe this idea came from a purely secular scholar, not a Christian 
But he identifies, basically, the seven points of Father Halverson's homiletical method as elements of the monomyth. You have a character, the hero, who, you know, comes, uh, falls into a, some kind of problem outside of his normal context, and uh, he's trying to deal with it. It gets worse and worse and worse. And then there has to be a sacrifice uh, through which comes salvation. Um, if I remember right, he goes into more detail, but that's basically the shape of it. And of course, we recognize at once that's the shape of the gospel. That's the shape of the one true myth, as C.S. Lewis calls the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's interesting. Our homiletics professor said very uh, compellingly, you know, people in our day, people pay good money to go and hear good stories. <laughs> and my friend and I were examples of that just the other day. We paid to go see the Spider-Man movie. Um, if that wasn't the case, Hollywood would be out of business. You know, people go and they spend hours and they fork over the cash to experience stories that speak to our heart. And so, um, well, this priest is very practical. He taught our parish administration class. So he put it this way. Uh, if you're in a parish, you start preaching good homilies, don't be surprised to see the collection start to mount towards the roof. <laughs> the collections are going to go way up. It's natural. Because people want to go and hear good homilies. They want to go to a place where they're going to hear the gospel story. They're going to hear the, the word of life. Hear a word of hope. Which really addresses their deep need. And so this is a tool to, to do that. So I'm excited about it. Um, I'm excited to have some direction on how to write good homilies. He made the point also that, you know, it's not really fair uh, to send seminarians out into the parishes to go preach without having given us a method like this, because we spend eight, nine, ten years hearing almost exclusively lectures, right? <laughs> we hear lectures. Even the homilies we hear are usually lectures. And so when we go to the parish, naturally, we want to give a lecture uh, when it comes time for us to preach. We want to share all the good stuff that we've learned and the format that we know how to do that and that we've received all this good information in is a lecture format. But the people in the pews on Sunday don't want to hear a lecture. People in the pews on Sunday are not graduate theology students. And, it, and that's not to say we ought not to incorporate, you know, sound theological concepts and orthodox theology. There has to be that formation. But the key is, um, what's the medium? What's the, what's the format? In a sense, the medium is the message, um, because it doesn't matter what we say, if it's even if it's excellent theology, it matters what they hear. If the people in the pews, 95% of them, tune out because your homily is so boring, <laughs> it doesn't matter. You might have the best content on earth, but they're not receiving anything from it. So I'm excited about this method, and I'm going to be posting some of the practice homilies we do in class over the next few months. Um, so you can give me your feedback as well. Let me know what you think about it. I'm still discerning about starting that Tolkien uh, podcast during Lent and Easter. You might remember I talked about this a few months back. Just an idea that I had about um, doing daily reflections 
not simply on the gospel of the day, but also weaving in the chapter of Lord of the Rings for that day, following the Tolkien reading plan, the uh, annual pilgrimage to Middle-earth of the uh, Lenten Lord of the Rings. So I'm very much taken with the idea. I want to do it. My only hesitation is my workload is so great. I don't yet know if I can commit to it or not. And uh, it's one of those things I think, you know, I'd like to get a head start on. However, um, I can't really, I, I, I can't see a way that I can really start reading The Lord of the Rings uh, ahead, of, ahead of schedule, because there's all this other, of course, there's Dickens reading to do, and there's also all my class reading to do. I have a finite amount of time to spend on reading each day. So if I do it, it'll basically be flying by the seat of my pants and every day recording the reflection like live for that day or maybe for the next day. I could probably get one day ahead, but that's about it. So still thinking about it. It is something I would like to do. And if I, if I do it, I think I will launch it as a separate podcast um, in the hopes that it might reach a slightly wider audience than just in your embrace, you faithful few <laughs> who listen to my ramblings as I wander through the woods each week. <laughs> but uh, yeah, if I commit the time to do the Tolkien thing, um, I'd like to do it in such a way that it might, it might reach a wider audience. For example, I'd like to advertise it through some other podcasts, um, both Tolkien-related and Catholic podcasts that I listen to, in the hopes that those podcast creators might loop in some of their listeners to take a chance on this Tolkien thing. Um, so I'm going to continue discerning about that, but let me know what you think. Um, you can send a voice message through Anchor or send me a message in all the ways that you all already know well. All right, so I've walked about four miles here. Amazingly, I've already been recording for almost half an hour. <laughs> I think I am nearing the end of the trail. But let us jump over for a few minutes here and talk a little bit about Mr. Charles Dickens. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Come in, come in, and know me better, man. God bless us, everyone. What the Dickens? Well, I finished Chesterton's biography of Dickens while I was sick. Uh, it was a wonderful read from beginning to end, so if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. Um, I think I covered most of the points last week that I wanted to make from the biography, but one stands out in my mind that I don't think I touched on, and that's this. I don't have the quotes here in front of me, of course. I could dig them up on my Kindle app, but I'd rather keep an eye on the trail <laughs> as I'm going, so I'll try to just do this from memory. Anyway, Dickens talks about, uh, sorry, Chesterton talks about Dickens as a man of uncommonly common sense. Something like that. <laughs> and, uh, of course, the same could probably be said about Chesterton himself. The point is, 
he says in one place that Dickens is not a man who had, on the one hand, moderate interest in mediocre things. That's a very common sort of person, a dull kind of a person, <laughs> who has, you know, an appropriate amount of interest, not too excited, in pedestrian things. Someone who likes a walk in the park, or who likes a nice cup of tea. On the other hand, Dickens is also not this second type of person that we might be familiar with, someone who has an immoderate level of excitement in extraordinary things. Like, oh, someone who's extremely passionate about model railroads, or who jumps up and down with excitement at the thought of bird watching. <laughs> Just for examples. Nothing against train enthusiasts or bird watchers. But Dickens is neither type of person. Um, at least according to Chesterton, Dickens is someone who has an immoderate level of interest. Um, almost an, uh, an, an absurd, eccentric <laughs> level of interest in what is pedestrian and mundane. And uh, reading that description just struck me that my favorite authors exhibit that same quality. Gerard Manley Hopkins is a case in point. Um, famously, his Jesuit brothers would find him sometimes lying like on his stomach on the ground, face to face with a puddle or a blade of grass or a little flower. So fascinated was he with these very mundane um, expressions of the creativity of God. And likewise, Chesterton, you know, you could say the same sort of thing about him. Tolkien, I don't know if, um, yeah, in any of our readings of him, we have really found that level of sort of eccentric <laughs> excitement or interest. On the other hand, he certainly had a great passion for the ordinary things of England. Trees and hedges and little country roads, you know, immortalized forever in his image of the Shire. Um, and so, you could say about all these men, I think, Dickens included, they're kind of mystics of the ordinary. They see something in what is everyday that the majority of us don't see. They see the preciousness, the value, what is unrepeatable in every flower, <laughs> in every, for Dickens, every street in London, every corner shop, every, you know, middle-class pedestrian, every uh, Victorian clerk and peasant and chimney sweep that other people wouldn't look twice at. And for Dickens especially, in his particular context, his social milieu, the age of cheerful democracy and the English radical spirit and all of that, for Dickens especially, he's a mystic of the ordinary mass of everyday people, the, the regular Joe <laughs> living on the streets of London. There's also a story that Chesterton tells. It's quite a famous quote, uh, which I didn't realize came from this particular work. And it's actually a story from Dickens' own life that Chesterton recounts. There was a time that Dickens was walking the streets of London when he passed by a little coffee room, 
and it had the name in, uh, you know, frosted glass letters or something on the window. But he saw it in the reflection. So rather than reading Coffee Room, he read More a Fuck. <laughs> and Dickens would tell the story sometimes uh, to great effect of how reading those two strange words, more ifak, um, shook him out of his, his everydayness, to use a term from Heidegger, his Dasein, his unthinking mode of just walking around in the world, like most of us do most of the time, and shocked him into this realization that the world is a wild and unpredictable place. It was as if he turned the corner and found himself no longer in London, but in a foreign land, in an upside-down world. And uh, as funny as the story might be in itself, it tells us something important about Dickens's character, I think, and his, his view of, of the world, um, which is that the world is a place full of surprises, fundamentally wild, and that the perception of it as ordinary, boring, mundane, predictable, is a paper-thin illusion. And just on the other side of it, of that sort of um, sheer curtain of that thin veil, there is a world bursting with unexpected surprises. And occasionally we get flashes of it, like the sign more Ifok on a London coffee room. And so that's one thing I want to be on the lookout for as we begin reading Dickens. I'm not sure how prevalent that theme will be in his earliest work, the Pickwick Papers, which we're about to start this coming week. But I want to be on the lookout for it in Pickwick and in all his works. Um, this theme of the unpredictability, the fundamental wildness of the world, and the surprises lurking around every corner. And also for the theme of this irrepressible um, surprisingness, it's got to be a better word than that, of human beings in themselves. Um, we talked last week about this as a consequence characteristic of Dickens's democratic spirit, that every person is unrepeatable and a person of unfathomable depths. So I want to be on the lookout for that as well. Um, Chesterton talks a lot about how each of Dickens's characters, even the most insignificant, um, is more real, stri strikes us as more real, a fuller sort of picture of a human person than like the most significant, fully realized characters in the novels of other authors of the period. So Dickens is a master character artist, if you, if you will. So I want to be on the lookout for that as well. Um, especially the characters who, as Chesterton says, do not advance the plot, sometimes those are actually more significant than the main characters, the main protagonists in the limelight. So let's keep our eyes peeled as we begin reading Dickens for each of those two themes, the unpredictability, the surprisingness of the whole created world and of human beings themselves. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Open your hearts, open up your hearts to Christ. The world is charged with the grandeur 
Alright, I made it back here to my car in the interim time between the last segment and this one. That was a hike of about five and a half miles for the record. Pretty good hike. I'm pretty tired out. I think I'll sleep well tonight. And I didn't even make it all the way to the end, by the way. I had to turn back to make sure that I would uh, get back to the seminary in time for another engagement I have coming up shortly. So I'm going to be hitting the road here in just a few minutes. Uh, For this very last and brief theology segment, I just wanted to share a few words about prayer, continuing on from last week's um, little little uh, fervorino <laughs> about the, uh, the method of prayer coming from the book of Revelation, those six points or six stages or aspects of prayer from uh, our Lord's words there. So I wanted to give you just one more practical thing. And this might continue for a few weeks as I think of little practical things. Um, let me know if you find them helpful. But here's one that I've just been doing recently. The Lord put it on my heart to do, um, starting a few weeks ago, and that's this. You know, uh, the spiritual teachers of the church, the, the spiritual tradition of the church, places a great emphasis on the importance of making an act of thanksgiving after Holy Mass, and especially Holy Communion. We ought to each individually be spending at least, you know, a couple of minutes um, at, at minimum, after communion, thanking the Lord for the gift of himself that he's given to us. St. Teresa of Jesus is very big on this. She says that the reason the Lord does not grant more favors to many people is because of a lack of gratitude. In other words, if we showed more thankfulness for the graces that he's already poured out, the Lord would give us even more. And the image we should have is not of, you know, the father kind of standing with his arms crossed, tapping his foot, thinking, why don't I get more appreciation for what I do? It's that if we have a heart disposed toward gratitude, um, I'll, I'll say it a different way, actually. A heart that is that is disposed toward gratitude is a heart that is disposed to receive the gifts of God. Uh, the more grateful we are, the more thankful we are, the more we are disposed to receive even more gifts, even greater gifts. So how do we make a good act of thanksgiving um, after Holy Communion? Well, here's one method that I like to use. Uh, basically, from the the text of the Mass for that day. Basically, from the text of the Mass for that day, from the daily readings, the Gospel, perhaps from the homily, um, what's one word that stood out to you? So during the Mass, be listening for what's one thing, what's one particular word that stood out in your memory as the Lord speaking directly to you. Um, At every Mass, I guarantee there's at least one word, there's at least one thing that's directed towards you in particular. So be listening for that. Then after Holy Communion, perhaps after the Mass is done, or in the time of silence, after the distribution of Communion is finished, before the final prayer, if your parish allows a couple of minutes of silence there, call that word to mind. And here's what you can do. Repeat it to yourself, um, each time giving thanks to God for Whatever you receive from that word, hope, encouragement, um, uh, an invitation to repentance, consolation, whatever it might be. So you repeat the word to yourself. Let's say it's this one from today's Mass, when Our Lady says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So quietly to yourself, you would say, do whatever he tells you. Then pray, one, our Father. Then again, you repeat to yourself, do whatever he tells you. And pray one, Hail Mary. And finally, do whatever he tells you. 
and pray one, Glory Be. And offer each of those little prayers with the intention of just giving thanks to God for all that He has given you. I'll tell you something funny. For me today at Mass, the word that I used for that threefold Thanksgiving after Holy Communion was from a little baby <laughs> who was there. There was this family visiting us. I don't know who they were. I think they were probably the family of one of the seminarians, but I don't know that for sure. But they were sitting in the front row, and they had a few kids and this little baby. And during the, the homily, or actually during the gospel, the baby started crying out, Mama! Mama! And she was she was actually in some distress. She was screaming. <laughs> and the mom had to eventually take her out of the jabble and calm her down. But it made me smile. It really stood out to me, especially with the prominence of Mary in today's readings. Mary's right there. She's kind of directing the show there at the wedding of Cana. And this little baby crying out, Mama, um, the Lord spoke to me in that as like, we need to, I need to have that childlike disposition, not only towards God the Father, but towards Mary uh, in moments of distress to cry out for her intercession, for her to uh, bring me to her son and for her to obtain the graces that I need. So that was my prayer of Thanksgiving. I prayed, Mama, <laughs> our Father, Mama, Hail Mary, Mama, glory be to the Father. So it might be anything for you, but something that stands out for you from that Mass, give thanks to God for it, using those three most basic and most powerful prayers of the Church. Just a suggestion. Let me know if it's helpful, and let me know if you'd like me to continue with these little practical points on prayer in the coming weeks. Until then, dear friends, may Almighty God bless us, may He protect us from all evil, and may He bring us to everlasting life. Amen. We